uh, Malachi chapter 4, it's on page 962, and uh, we started uh, there last Sunday morning in chapter, sorry, a fortnight uh, ago uh, on the Sunday morning, looking at uh, just the, the the very beginning of Acts chapter 4, which surprised us a little bit, you might uh, remember. Surely the day is coming. What day? It was the day that they were longing for, the day that God would come and visit them afresh, the day that they would know God moving in revival in powerful uh, ways. Surely the day is coming. Uh, and then with this next phrase, he takes the wind right out of their sails because it will be anything but like the day they are anticipating. It will burn like a furnace, all the arrogant and Every evildoer will be uh, stubble, and that day uh, is coming, will set them on fire. A day then of judgment uh, instead of revival. Remember we looked at a fortnight ago that actually that's the choice. Arthur Wallace talks about uh, God's judgment being the solemn alternative to revival. Unless God comes after a period of time and revives his church, he will come instead and judge her for being less than everything he has called her uh, to be. But that's not what they were hoping for, and that's not what they were longing for, and in a sense that word would have brought them up short uh, and re-emphasized and underlined again all that God had been saying to them through the whole of this book, that they've got to sort themselves out, they've got to sort out their worship, they've got to sort their leaders out, they've got to sort out their relationships out, they've got to sort their marriages out, they've got to sort their giving out, they've got to sort the attitude of their heart out if they really want God to come and uh, revive them. Because there is a promise, and that promise is that if they return to me, I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Mighty, Not in judgment, but in blessing and in revival. And God even dares them to test and see that he will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that they will not have room enough for it. So let's go on to verse 2 of Malachi chapter 4 because there we see the contrast. If God doesn't come in revival, he will come in judgment. If he doesn't come in judgment, he will come in revival. But for you, verse 2, you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you'll go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Uh, a very different picture, a very different metaphor, a metaphor of God moving in, uh, in healing ways and bringing freedom and deliverance and so on. And this morning we were just asking this question, well, what would it look like? Well, what does it look like if uh, revival was to come in our church, in our town, in our nation? What are the kind of themes we might expect to emerge. Now, where do we go to unpack uh, a very small, short verse at the back end of uh, Malachi? Well, we go to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is like the blueprint, the expression of God, uh, how he moves and what he does. Charles uh, Finney writes, the great revivalist, uh, the accompaniments and results of revival are always substantially the same as in the case of Pentecost. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a great Welshman. Not all Welshmen are great, most of them are. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great Welshman. It's generally agreed that the best way of defining a revival is to say that it is the church returning to the book of Acts. That's the kind of repetition, that it's the kind of repetition, sorry, of Pentecost. So what's that like? Well, just five themes to share with you this morning that we might anticipate if God was to come in revival type uh, ways. The first one uh, is obvious, perhaps, or maybe not, and we've talked about it in the book of Acts already this year with our series High Impact Church that we began in January. Whatever else we notice about the book of Acts, it is a story of phenomenal growth. Growth way beyond what those 122 prayerful disciples who met after Jesus had gone up into heaven might have imagined. It was a a growth that seemed to spiral almost out of control. In fact, some of the translations of this verse uh, suggest that it's trying to express that it's, it's growing beyond anybody's ability to count it or understand it. More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Arthur Skevington Wood, that's his real name, a Methodist historian wrote, revival and conversions cannot be dissociated from each other. They go together. Whenever the church experiences Pentecost, conversions invariably ensue. And I think he's right. So, whenever we might talk about God doing great things in the church, God renewing the church, reviving the church, turning the church upside down or inside out, the first question we might want to ask is how many people are really coming to know him? It's like that's the big question. How many people are actually having their lives changed? How many people are actually leaving behind a life of unbelief to embrace a life of faith? How many, or the Bible puts it, are coming out of darkness into his glorious light? That's always the measure of God moving in revival type ways. And of course, that's a challenge for us, isn't it? Because we might, and uh, ministers are probably the best at it, chat with one another and, and give 101 reasons why things are going well in their church. God would say, when things are really going well, this is what you might expect. So we ask ourselves in the midst of that, probably patting ourselves on the back, and and I can say these things because somehow it's my responsibility uh, 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 as, as well as yours, more than yours maybe. For all the good stuff, how many? And we go, ooh, hmm, hmm. Hmm. Oh, stupid question. But it's an important question, isn't it? So you read about God pouring out his Holy Spirit on the church in Acts, and suddenly this exponential growth, so they couldn't keep up with what was going on. Now, that's the blueprint. That's what God's word says. This is what you're looking for. And we go, ah, things are really good because there's lots of people in church or we've got lots of small groups or the music's okay or the music's fab or whatever it might be, depending on uh, uh, whether it's your style that particular Sunday or not. And uh, the preacher was good because he was funny or he was rubbish because he wasn't or he was good because he wasn't funny and so on and so on and so forth. All kinds of reasons why we might say, hey, things are good and, and, and we're drawn back all the time. 
When God poured out of his spirit, day after day, the people were added to his number. And so we go, hmm, That's an interesting question. And it's not just in a few verses in Acts, it goes through, and I've documented it several times this year already, so I'm not going to uh, labour the point much more. But just to say a bit, a bit later in, in, in this chapter, Acts chapter 5, they're already talking about the whole of Jerusalem being filled with this teaching. They're already talking about a huge number of priests, the religious people, uh, getting converted. And then in Acts chapter uh, 7, they're talking about a whole load of ordinary Acts chapter 6, sorry, a whole load of ordinary people uh, uh, coming to Christ, and so it goes on. Bob Dunnett, writing uh, in his book, Let God Arise, says, Jerusalem was literally stirred from end to end. Thousands of people became Christians, despite the intense opposition of the authorities. Whilst you'll never know exactly how many were converted, but the expressions used in Acts could well indicate some tens of thousands. Astonishingly, all of it sprang from a mere 120 souls clinging to a promise in prayer. Then we get into Acts chapter 8 and uh, Philip takes uh, the message to Samaria. They were the enemy, but revival broke out in Samaria, which must have caused a few theological problems because God was working there even though the people weren't prepared to. And uh, uh, we know that there was an explosion of Christian growth there. Then some other people, Philip had gone to Samaria, some other of the disciples had gone further north where it was really hard. Ever heard people talk like that? It's really hard there. I was in a church in, uh, in Clan Rumney where, the, uh, uh, where it was really hard. That's what everyone would say. Big, large council housing estate, it was really hard. Hey, it's no harder there than anybody else, I tell you. Because everybody needs this gospel message. And so the gospel went further north to the place, everyone, oh, it's really hard up there. And what do you read? You can read all about it in uh, Acts chapter 11. The Lord's hand, it says, was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. That's verse 21 of Acts 11, if you're interested. So in all the different places where they're going, oh, well, it might have happened in Jerusalem because they're a religious lot. Well, yes, it did. And then it happened in Samaria, where it was their enemies, and revival broke out there. Then a bit further north, they said, oh, it's really hard there. It'll never happen there. It broke out there as well. And Acts chapter 13, this is somewhere else, no idea where this is. Uh, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And so it goes on. Hmm, so how many? Lord, revive your church. Lord, revive your church. And that's exactly what's happened through history, isn't it? The 19th century American revival, I talked about that on the, uh, uh, on the Sunday we, we did Seeking the, the Lord, uh, about how a, a prayer meeting, Jeremiah Lamphere, started this prayer meeting in New York, and uh, within months, hundreds of thousands of people were coming to faith right across America, and it swept to Europe, and uh, uh, England, Wales, and Scotland, and Ulster, Ireland in particular. Uh, a Baptist journal, a Baptist journal, uh, writing uh, at this time. A Baptist journal attempted to keep abreast of the news of conversions reaching its office before its, but its editor apparently gave up the task after listing 17,000 conversions reported to him by Baptist leaders in three weeks. That's the list. You know the list in the Baptist times of people that get baptised? That's that list. And he gave up when he got the 17,000 in three weeks. In London in the 1860s, masses of unchurched people were flocking to hear the gospel, such that the, ma the major London theatres were taken over on a Sunday night. No less than 50,000 of London's unchurched people were being reached every week. 
the 18th century. So if you go back another century, we can read about Whitfield and Wesley. Uh, listen to Whitfield's journal of what was going on in Bristol. I mean, you can visit these places. Some of us come from these places. Sunday at four, I hastened to Kingswood. I've preached in Kingswood. It wasn't like this. There were about 10,000 to hear me. That's Whitfield speaking, not me. <laughs> yes. On Sunday, the, March the 4th, I went to Newgate and preached to an exceedingly large congregation. I then hastened to Hannah Mount, three miles from the city where the coal miners all live. Over 4,000 were ready to hear me at four in the afternoon. And so it goes on and on and on. And then you go, well, what about now? Well, in our century, there's been all kinds of revivals sweeping, but not in the places we might look for them. Not in Britain or in America, but in Asia, Africa and South America. In the 70s, for example, around 10 million people came to Christ uh, in South America. There's phenomenal growth documented in Korea or China and elsewhere. We can be encouraged by what God is doing when he pours out his Holy Spirit on his church. But it puts what's going on here into context a little bit doesn't it? You go, Lord, revive your church. Help us not to settle for all the things that we might list to say, well, things are going quite well, aren't they? Almost rhetorically, afraid that someone might say, no, maybe they're not. So there was this phenomenal growth. What's revival like? Well, we should look for that. We should pray for it. We should long for it. It was phenomenal growth that came out of two distinct, and there may be others, themes that also are testified to in great measure in the book of Acts. The first was anointed preaching. When they heard this, when the people heard this, heard what? Heard the first sermon that Peter had preached. Who's Peter? He's a fisherman, which means that he's not very educated, if educated at all. He's also a fisherman that comes from Galilee. Now, if you came from Galilee, not only did you speak with a kind of country accent, but it was a bit like, you know when they want to make someone sound really thick on the telly, they give them a Welsh accent? No, there's nothing funny about that. It's just that what they do. It's a bit like that. So kind of every time Peter spoke in the big city, it was like, mm, he's a thicko, you know? He doesn't know what he's on about. But this Peter, just after the Holy Spirit gets poured out, gets up and preaches, and what happens? 3,000 people plus are cut to the heart, stung to the core. Was it his education? No, of course not. Was it his social standing? No, he came from the country. Was it his skilled eloquence? No, he, Peter was as subtle as a brick. But it was the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And when God's moved in powerful ways, there has been those times and those moments when God's word has been opened up with such power and conviction, not necessarily eloquence and oratory, but with spiritual power and conviction that many have cried out to God in response. Now maybe you're thinking, well, preaching isn't my thing. Okay, well, let's move on to the next thing because it wasn't by far just preaching. There's another story that went hand in hand of people's personal evangelistic zeal. So in the stories through Acts, you get these moments when Peter preaches and lots of people get converted. And you get these other moments of, of detailed conversations between individuals. Philip, for example, with the Ethiopian eunuch, or Peter at Cornelius' house, or Paul and Barnabas with Lydia, and so on. You can find them there in the book. 
And what happened was this. Acts chapter 8 talks about a persecution. And if persecution came, we'd go, oh no, persecution. And rightly so, it would be a terrible thing. But because of the persecution, it says that everyone was scattered except the apostles. Everyone was scattered except the professional preachers and teachers. And it says in verse 4, those who had been scattered, so everybody except the professional teachers and preachers, so everybody else, they preached the word wherever they went. What does that word preach mean? It's an unfortunate word, isn't it? Because we think of someone standing up and preaching to many people. They didn't do that. They weren't the professional teachers and preachers. They were the ordinary people that literally just, just spoke, just shared the message wherever they went. And that's the story. And that's why it spread so fast. Because these ordinary people, whose lives were utterly transformed, couldn't help talking about it. And so every time they prayed for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, they'd pray that the Holy Spirit would give them boldness to speak God's word. And so they did, wherever they went. And the growth and spread of the early church, as Michael Green often documents, uh, of the early church, was not by either preachers or professionals, but by thousands of anonymous believers who simply gossiped the gospel and discussed their newfound faith with friends and contemporaries. You might say it's easy to say it's the preacher's job, but it's not, and it wasn't. And if we think of revivals as being the preacher's job, we'll misunderstand the history of them, especially those revivals in recent times. For example, one of the greatest revivals over the last 20 years has been in China. Uh, Conservative estimates now put the number of Chinese Christians uh, as 12 million plus, and that's a fairly old figure now. When you can't preach publicly, Political opposition is fierce from time to time. They have to meet secretly. What, what, is, what has caused the spread? Has it been the great... No, it been no great preachers. Great preachers don't come out of China holding mass rallies, but lots of people. Lives totally changed, transformed, just talking about it as they went. The mark of a revival. So, okay, we're three. We've got two to go. So there's this phenomenal growth. There was this anointed preaching. There was personal uh, evangelism, evangelistic zeal. And fourthly, there was tangible signs of God's power at work. So they would pray, stretch out your hand, Lord God, and heal some people. Stretch out your hand, God, and perform some miraculous signs and wonders. Why? Because that's the kind of thing you do. And remember that the book of Acts is a blueprint. And as we looked at uh, one sermon earlier on in the year, we looked at the lame man, the cripple outside the, uh, the gate, beautiful, and how it became a catalyst for the preaching of the word. Well, that happens time and time again. Uh, turn, if you've got a pew Bible, it looks like this, 1103 uh, in the pew Bible. And we'll just look at another example of that uh, together. How when God moved in the way God moves, it opened up doors for the gospel that might not otherwise have been opened up. 1103. At verse 32, so at the bottom of the left-hand page of, uh, of 1103, we get uh, uh, a miracle. We get a miracle. As Peter travelled around the country, uh, he went to visit the saints at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, 
a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you, get up and tidy up your mat. Becoming a bit of a theme for Peter, really, wasn't it, paralytics? Immediately, he got up. Okay, the end, end of the miracle, that's it, over. Verse 35, as a consequence, as a result, directly related to in some way, all those who lived there and saw him turned to the Lord. Why is Luke putting it like that? He's saying, look, that something happened, God moved in a miraculous way, and it became a, a platform or a doorway on which the gospel message could be built or on which the gospel message could be carried through. Then look what happens next. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died. And her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Uh, these two places, Lydium, it's near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was there and he'd sorted out the paralytic, they go, well, okay, you better come at once. So verse 39, Peter went with them. And when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around crying and showing him the robes and other clothes, clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room, which was a good thing to do. They didn't have much faith, obviously. Then he turned, got down on his knees and prayed. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. That's it. That's the healing. Done. Dusted. This became known all over Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. Two miracles, the same concluding sentence, Exactly the same as what we read about in Acts chapter 3. It's almost like Luke's trying to tell us something. That when God moves in God-like ways, it becomes a platform for the release of the gospel message. Now, there are several dangers. There are several dangers. And the first danger is that you think whenever there's a miracle, then people are going to believe. Manifestly, they do not. Jesus did lots of miracles, and lots of people didn't believe in him. So it's, there's no guarantees, this is no quick fix, this is no, well, golden goose, if we get this right, then the whole world will flock to Jesus. No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, Jesus says they'll have every sign they can imagine, they still won't believe. So let's not fall into that trap. Let's not fall into the other trap of thinking, well, God only does these things to impress people so that people can come to faith. No, God does these things anyway, because it's the kind of God that he is. And when we look to God to do God-like things, these are the kind of things we can expect him to do, because that's what he's like. So, for example, when a man full of leprosy, who was an outcast because of his leprosy, he was diseased, it was like having AIDS, no one would go near him, no one would touch him, he'd have to live outside the city, he'd lost his job, his family, his livelihood, his home, he'd lost everything everything because of the disease, would come ringing a bell, what happened? Jesus healed him, but why? Jesus did not say, well, I'm going to heal this man, so all of you will know that I can heal, and then you'll put your trust in me. The Bible says, no, Jesus filled with compassion. I'm going to do this because it's the kind of thing God does. I'm like this. This is what I feel to people that are hurting and broken and bruised and damaged. This is my heart. And when I'm allowed to do my kind of thing, this is the kind of thing that I do. So it's not just about it becoming a platform for faith or opening a doorway or a bridge across which the gospel can go, whatever kind of metaphor you choose to use. And it's been true all through history. When God's moved in God-type ways, 
The church has been built up in, uh, and established. And let's talk about China again because it's current, as it were. Uh, Ross uh, Patterson writes in his book about China, this is back in the late 80s though, called Heart Cry for China. He puts it like this. Healings, miracles, signs and wonders are the norm for Christians in China. They're not taken completely by surprise when people are raised from the dead. I would be. Whew, scary. They're not taken completely by surprise when people are raised from the dead, delivered from evil spirits, or healed of all kinds of diseases. They do not read books and teaching material telling them how to get into this kind of ministry. <laughs> For they preach it as part of their everyday life in Christ. Closest we get to healing sometimes is reading a book on how to heal in the name of Jesus. But when God was pouring out his Holy Spirit, he, just, he was just doing God-type stuff. And when God does God-type stuff, you might expect this kind of thing to happen. And so we're looking for these things, not as an end in themselves, but because they're part of the demonstration of God at work. You see, when people in our world today are looking for a spirituality that's real, we might understand why sometimes they look at the church and say, if your God is so great, where is he? Where is he? And we'd have to admit, maybe they've got a point. Where is he? Will revival come? Yes, seek me. And I'll come to my temple. I'll come to my people. And then lastly and uh, finally, uh, there's a new zeal for social transformation. Uh, and maybe uh, this takes us by surprise. Because there's always been, it seems to me, maybe not always, but in, in our recent history, last hundreds of years or so, the church has happily sat in two camps. There have been those that do practical caring stuff, and we even might say, I'm a practical sort of Christian. I kind of love people, I care for people, I'll, I'll do the soup kitchen, I'll do the homeless run, I'll do that kind of stuff. And then there are other Christians kind of over here, well, we're the spiritual kind of Christians, and we're into evangelism, and we need people to be saved, and all that kind of stuff. And they're over there, and they're over there. Fantastic thing about revival, when God pulls out his Holy Spirit on his church, is kind of what he does. He, he brings them over there, and he brings them over there, and he says, no, you're all right here in the middle. This is what I'm doing. This is why it's not either or, it's both and. And one of the greatest rediscoveries in recent years, last 20 years or so, is, is this word integrated mission. We love the whole person because that's what God's like. And, and it makes sense, doesn't it, really? If someone is hungry, you can't really talk to them about spiritual hunger, can you? Hello? Well, you can, but you might get a thump in the face. When someone is starving hungry, they need food. When someone is worried about whether they're going to give their children something to eat that night, they need food to give their children to eat that night. Let's not talk to them about spiritual hunger. We need to feed them, and then they will be interested in a message about the parts of their lives that they're not so immediately concerned about. It's not either or, but it's both and. And when revival comes, it brings both these things together. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. There's this incredible growth in Christianity. Incredible numbers of people being converted. And yet at the same time, there is an incredible outreach to the poor and to the needy. Acts chapter 6, we looked at at our church meeting a few weeks, a few days ago rather, 
about how they, they, they weren't going to give up one type of ministry in order to favor another. It was both and. And look what's happened just in Acts chapter 2. This is right at the beginning. God's poured out of his Holy Spirit. And it says all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions they gave to anyone as he had need. Now, the remarkable thing about that for me is that there are lots of people who give to those in need. But I don't really generally meet people who sell their own stuff to do that. Do you? Generally, we don't do that. But such was their commitment to every injustice at any level. Such was their commitment to expressing the love of God. It didn't matter what that person's need was, spiritual or physical, emotional or mental, the whole person was caught up in God's saving work. And we need to discover and rediscover that that is true. And that's what happened in revivals. Tremendous change in the social landscape when God moved in revival-like ways. So we think about Whitfield and Wesley, for example, as great preachers and mass conversions. And yes, that's absolutely true. But that's not the whole story. Listen to some of Whitfield's journal. I preached and collected for the needs of the poor prisoners in Newgate two to three times a week. It was precious to nourish my acquaintance with the rich for the benefit of the poor. <laughs> I recommended two poor clergymen to their charity, some rich ladies' charity, and they said, uh, um, they said little but gave about 36 guineas, a lot of money. Orphan boys and girls looked on me as their greatest benefactor. Spiritual revival and social reform went hand in hand. John Wesley was exactly the same. Wesley was both a preacher and a prophet of social righteousness, as John Stott describes him. He spoke out against the slave trade. Now, who brought the slave trade to an end? We know the name, William Wilberforce, who was a great friend of John Wesley. But all of the history books will tell you that actually slavery came to an end not just because of the great work of William Wilberforce, but because, and I quote, it was not because of one powerful individual, but because of the concerted effort of thousands of people who had become convinced by the passion of William Wilberforce that the status quo was wrong and could be changed. Powerful people in Parliament like William Wilberforce took up the cause, but it needed the agreement and support of thousands of ordinary people to ensure the destruction of the slave trade. Where did thousands of people come from? They came from the spiritual revival, hand in hand. So in the 19th century, remember the mid-1800s, those theatres that were taken over, and there was this great spiritual revival. But actually, at the same time, Winky Prattney writes about the way the awakening concerned, uh, uh, reawakened Christian concern with poverty, the rights of women and children, working people, the evils of liquor, uh, of liquor traffic, slum housing and racial bitterness uh, 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 blossomed in a thousand movements and ministries to see the nation changed. The incredible movement of social transformation, out of which come names like Shaftesbury, William Booth, and so on. Because they came together. And when God pours out his Holy Spirit, he brings those two things together. And what we need to understand, I think, here, as we cry out to God for him to pour out his Holy Spirit, is that actually there aren't going to be two camps. There aren't going to be those of us that are really keen on helping people around the neighborhood or, or around our own neighborhoods, wherever we might be, with all kinds of practical stuff. And then there'll be another group of people, well, we're going to go to them and we're going to sock them with the gospel. No, God's going to bring it all together. And we're going to go to people with the love of Jesus that loves them enough to clothe them if they need clothes, that loves them enough to feed them if they're hungry, but loves them enough to tell them about Jesus that can totally change their lives and make them secure forever as well. All part of the same deal, don't you think? 
which is why I wrote on the front of the grapevine just a couple of months ago about all those examples that I've been reading about recently where those two things are coming together. Phenomenal growth in the church in Chorley Wood because they're going out in their community saying, okay, what are the needs here? Well, they're not just meeting the needs, they're taking Jesus with them. And it's not that those practical Christians are there doing practical stuff and there are other types of Christians that talk about Jesus. In fact, it's one and the same. Those that are caring for them, body, mind and soul, are also talking about Jesus passionately and enthusiastically all at the same time. That's what's so impressive about Danny and Vera. What was their method for reaching people for Christ? Well, meet their needs whilst talking to them about Jesus. Doesn't sound hard until you try and do it, does it? But if God would pour out his Holy Spirit on us, and that would be a sign that he's at work in a powerful way. These things are signs. These things are themes. Maybe many more besides. We say, what does it mean for God to revive us? Well, it means these kind of things. We look to them, we long for them, we pray for them. Not for our own sake, but for the sake of the world. Pentecost, said C.H. Spurgeon, is that a tradition? Question mark. I see no reason why we should not have a greater Pentecost than Peter saw. Down through the ages they have. And we pray God do it again. Let's sing together a prayer that uh, God would fill this place, but that from this place God would go to the land and to the nations.